The first reading is taken from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The second reading is Revelation, chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. This is God's word. So we come tonight to this um, fairly crucial passage, chapter 2, 18 to 25, the very first marriage in the Bible. And we could happily spend a month just in this passage. But on a warm night, I've decided to do it all tonight. So let's pray. Father, thank you very much for the wisdom of your words. Thank you that marriage is your creation. Whether a culture or a society recognizes it or acknowledges it, you have made men and women in a certain way, and you have designed marriage for humanity. We thank you for these things. Pray this evening we'd understand it rightly and live, whether married or single, to the praise of your name. Amen. Amen. Now, then we said um, uh, last time, if you were here last time, this uh, section in the book of Genesis, particularly chapters 2 and 3, it's uh, obviously one section. Uh, God is given a new name. Um, so chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, 3, the, uh, sorry, God has created the world. That's the main point of that section, 1, 1 to 2, 3, God creates the world. And then chapter 2, verse 4 to 3, 24, uh, the emphasis is on what's gone wrong. God gets a new name. He is the Lord God in this section. 
And uh, it's there on the bottom of your uh, service sheets on the outline. You can see there's somewhat of a, a structure there that, where the emphasis really comes in the middle on what has gone wrong. Sin, that's the dominant issue of chapters 2 and 3. Why is the world as it is? And so we mustn't lose focus on that completely. And yet, of course, there, as well as that, there are lots of other things of enormous importance in chapters 2 and 3. One of them is marriage, which within the Bible is a fundamental metaphor for the relationship between Jesus Christ as a groom and the church as his bride. So the Bible starts, kind of, chapter 2 with a wedding and ends, kind of, uh, chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, and indeed 21, with a wedding. The book ends, this metaphor is very significant throughout the Bible. So when we're looking at marriage, and primarily tonight we'll consider that between a man and a woman, uh, rather than divine picture, it is indeed meant to teach us. So we mustn't, uh, mustn't leave that aside. Three things, though. Three things you want to look at, and uh, they're there on the sheet. The man required a helper, the couple required a marriage, and last, humanity requires a groom. And we'll take them in turn. First, then, the man required a helper. So at chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Oh. But that's a little surprising, because everything until this point has been good. That's been the recurrent phrase, particularly of chapter 1. It was good, God made it, and it was good. Now, this scenario, man being on his own, is not good. It's a temporary position, and God goes on to rectify it. But it's not good. Why? Well, we're told he needs a helper. Verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. What will I do about that? I will make a helper suitable for him. That's quite important. Well, it's crucial to get in place. It's not that God wanders through the garden and sees Adam and says, oh, there's something not right here. Adam, are you lonesome tonight? And sings a song, and Adam replies, yes, everybody needs somebody to love. <laughs> and they have this little duet, and uh, on it, no, it's not, God, that's not the problem as such. There's nothing in the chapter at all that suggests that Adam recognizes something as wrong and says, hold on a minute, there's something, I'm a bit lonely here. The problem that's identified in Genesis 2 is it's not good for the man to be helplessly alone. He needs someone to help him. Help him do what? Well, the context comes in verse 15, just above. We didn't have it read uh, uh, tonight. But why is man there? Chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. In the context of what we've had so far in Genesis 1 and 2, it's not good for the man to be alone because he needs help to take care of the Garden of Eden. And then, as we uh, looked at last time, there are three things going on. There are three little areas. There's the garden, which is a place inside Eden, which is a place inside the world. A man is meant to take the culture of the garden and spread it out to the world, which is uh, a little more um, unruly. Uh, Genesis 1.28, that needs subduing, needs dominion. A man needs help with that. He needs, needs help with the task of tending the garden and then subduing the world. Can't do it on his own. So we need to be slightly careful, because if you think Adam's problem is he's lonely tonight, uh, well then, you, that does create a bit of an issue, because does that mean in some sense, if you're single, you're deficient? I mean, was Jesus deficient? I 
you should have a problem with that, theologically. He is the perfect son of God. Other great heroes, in one sense, of, of the Bible, Paul, John the Baptist, these are single guys. There's nothing deficient with being single as such. The issue for Adam, the first man, was he needed help to help him work and take care of the garden. And so verse 19 to 20, we get the parade of the animals. Now, what's going on here? I take it it's not that God is stupid and thinks, well, maybe a kangaroo will do it. Maybe a marmoset is really what Adam needs to uh, help him. Now, I take it he parades these animals in front of Adam. So that Adam says, no, it's not quite right. It's not quite right, is it? So that by the time woman is created, Adam says, yes, that's what I need. Someone like me, but different to me. That's the sort of helper I need. I'll tell you, that's why you get these animals here. So verse 23, you get the cry. Verse 23, woman is created. Adam wakes up. And a man says, literally, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. At last, she shall be called woman. She's taken out of man. The reason it's printed differently is because it's poetry. It obviously in the original Hebrew has parallelism and assonance and uh, all the, the sort of um, what you'd expect to have in a poem. Adam breaks out into song, which means this is exciting. You know, life is not like an episode of Glee where men just spontaneously burst into song. That just doesn't, it's not normal. And so the reason Adam does it here is he's excited. At last, here is the one I need. This is what I was waiting for. Okay. Now, I want us to notice three things uh, about this helper that the, uh, the, the man requires. The helper is equal to him, different to him, and there's an order. Equal, different order. Okay? Let's just run through those in turn. Uh, the woman, then, is completely equal to Adam. I mean, that had been established back in chapter 1, verse 27, when you get the other account of creation. Uh, chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them equally, equally created in the image of God. And of course, the fact that woman is a helper, you might choose to, if you wanted to, take that as a derogatory term. Certainly in the Bible, it's not meant to be so. A helper is just one who brings resources the help he doesn't have. God, commonly in the Psalms, is described as a helper. In military terms, Israel is in trouble, God comes and helps with armies, that sort of helper. You get to the New Testament. Jesus' most common word for the Holy Spirit in chapters 14 to 16 of John is helper. There's nothing derogatory about being a helper. It just brings things, brings resources that the person, the helpee, uh, lacks. So the woman's completely equal in status. Yet what is clear is she's different. The woman is different. God didn't just say, Yes, Adam, on his own, in the garden, needs some help gardening. Farmer Giles. Farmer Giles is the perfect man. He is the gardener, in my imagination. It's not another man that comes in. Verse 18. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Or perhaps more literally, I will make one as opposite to him. I will make one who is the compliment to him, who fits him, who when you put the two things together, make a whole, I'll make one who complements him. Now, 
In what sense, generally, broadly, do women compliment men? This is the E word. I word is good. Compliment, that's good. Compliment one another afterwards. Nice dress, nice hair, nice sunburn, whatever you want to go for. That's all good. Compliment uh, with an E. In what sense do women compliment men? We're not told, actually. It's never specifically spelt out in uh, Genesis 2. I'm not sure it's particularly spelt out in detail in the scriptures overall. You can't just say men and women complement one another sexually, it fits, and uh, that's how uh, we reproduce. I mean, you could say that, and of course that's part of it. But God can make creatures that don't need that. God does make self-replicating creatures, like amoebas. That would be less fun. But um, God does make creatures like that. So it's not essential that men and women physically complement one another. And this sense in uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, of fitting as a complement... It's a bit stronger than just a physical sense. And how Adam responds, yes, yes, this is perfectly what I needed to help me in my task. There is a sense, there's biblically, that men and women need one another for the task of having dominion over the world, taking care of the world for life in this world. In what sense do men and women complement one another? It's not spelt out here, specifically. Augustine had a a nice opinion. He put it this way, um, commenting on verse 21, uh, the early church father, Augustine. uh, Adam gave bone to the woman, that is, she gave strength. And God closed up the place where it was left, where it was taken with flesh. That is, the woman softens the man. So man gives strength to woman, and woman softens man. And you think that's quite nice really think that's what's going on here Um, because later on of course when he sings he's conscious he's given a flesh and bones I wouldn't be sure about that but in what sense do men and women complement one another well it's kind of obvious in a marriage if and when you do get married you, you get to see the world through another person's eyes that generally is quite interesting but you also get to see the world through another gender's eyes that's really interesting um and there's certainly a sense which, uh, whatever, 12 years into marriage for me, I, you know, I, my best male friends see things often different to me, but my wife's perspective is very different from theirs. She sees things differently. I'll recount conversations and she'll say, yeah, you really got that wrong. And she'll tell me why. And you think, oh yeah, I hadn't really thought of it from that angle. And it kind of, it kind of works and you see it when you're in a marriage. But God made mankind male and female. The task of domesticating this world required both genders. It's not particularly spelt out how or why they complement, sorry, not spelt out how they complement one another. There are some details we'll come to. Let me just make a small point in passing. Um, Even if you're single and unmarried, Yes, that's obvious. Um, there's a sense in which you still need the opposite sex. Mankind still needs that. And I guess there's a sense in which Genesis 2 would point us towards if you're single and you don't ever relate to people of the opposite sex, you will be a little bit strange. Because they're different. And you need that different perspective. Even if you're not married, even if you're single, you, you still require that. God has made mankind male and female. 
Look, growing up, uh, my early years, I went to a grammar school, a boys' grammar school, until the age of 18. I went off to university. My, my interaction with the female species had been somewhat limited until that point. And if I'm honest, I look back on those days and just cringe, age 18, if you're age 18 and just come to university, please, this is, don't do this, is my point. But um, I was a little bit odd. Um, and so I remember... I remember you know, having these sort of conversations, sort of meet a girl and say, hello, do you like football? No. Do you like history? That's what I'm studying. No. Do you want another drink? No. And, um, and that was kind of how it went. You know, so I'm got to be realistic on that. So you look biblically, Jesus is the obvious, perfect example. Spent lots of time with women. Paul, you read through his letters. I tried to do a quick sum this week. He individually names as many women as men because he knows them as friends. Seems to me biblically a, a monastery or a convent are slightly odd places biblically. I wouldn't push that too hard because men and women require one another. They, God has made us male and female. There's a mutual dependence of the species, of the sexes, that is not just for reproduction but for fulfillment, fellowship, companionship. It's required. So God made the helper um, equal, different. But there is order. There is also order here. So just let me trace you through a few things. The man is given a distinct leadership role. And the woman is to help him in that. So just look at a few things. Chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, man is made first from the dust of the ground. Woman is obviously made from him. Uh, chapter 2, verse 15. It's the man who is given responsibility to tend God's creation. And the woman comes and helps him in that. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. God makes his covenant with the man. And the woman comes and helps him in that. When in chapter 3 they break their covenant with God... Adam is held responsible. He's accountable for that. Uh, chapter 2, verse 23, it's the man who names the woman. Chapter 2, verse 24, it's the man who takes the initiative in marriage, in leaving his parents and cleaving to his wife. So male and female equal. Different. There is an order. The man is given a distinctive leadership role. Now, we're not going to unpack all of this tonight. Um, uh, You can look up stuff we've done before, 1 Peter 3 or Ephesians 5, if you wanted lots more on how this might um, uh, uh, play out in detail. But just suffice to say, the rest of the Bible will apply that difference between men and women, that order, to two arenas of life, to marriage and to the church. And so in both those arenas, men are to take a leadership role in order to serve. It is servant leadership. So in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul comments back onto this text in Genesis 2, he makes the point that the husband's responsibility is to help his wife grow in godliness. So don't caricature this too much. The, the husband, of course, is still to help the wife, as well as the wife helping the husband. But there is a sense the man is to take an overall pattern of responsibility, leadership, in these two arenas, marriage and in the church. It's an overall pattern there in leadership. Now, let me just say, I think the majority of the world recognizes that. 
There is a reason why um, back in the 90s, uh, um, the John Gray book, Men Are From Mars, Women From Venus, you know, it sold 30 million copies in the 90s across the globe. 30 million copies. There's, quite, there's a reason for that. It's that people acknowledge that men and women are different. But does anyone here remember what the subtitle was? Probably not. The subtitle was, uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, A Practical Guide to Getting What You Want From Relationships. That's interesting, isn't it? Because John Gray says, let me, let me tell you some secrets about women and about men. Now when you go into relationships, plural, you can get what you want. So there's a very selfish agenda going on there. By contrast, the biblical perspective is you serve in marriage. And certainly the husband's role is to serve. One of the lovely quotes I reread this week um, from Christopher Ashe's big book on marriage puts it this way. If a husband thinks that the Bible gives him a crown in marriage, a crown that enables him to relax and take life easy, he has missed the point. He needs to grasp that the crown given in marriage to the husband is a crown of thorns. And he wears it for his wife's benefit. Male and female equal, different to complement one another. There is an order. It's an order so that the man can serve in his leadership. The man required a helper. Second thing, let's move on. Second thing, the couple, well, they required a marriage. The couple required a marriage. So verse 24 is the first uh, wedding service. You've got a bride, you've got a groom. God is kind of the father of the bride, giving the, the bride away, uh, something a bit like that. Um, and Adam bursts into song. Not many grooms do that on their wedding day. But it's kind of like, it is obviously the, the, the wedding. Now God declares here that in, according to him, there is a right way of getting married. And a society may reject it and a culture may ignore it. But there is such a thing as marriage, and it is good. It is for our good and our protection. Again, let me say three quick things about this marriage. It's a covenant, it's one flesh, and it's between a male and a female. Three quick things, okay? First, it's a covenant. It doesn't explicitly say that here, but elsewhere in the Bible, Malachi 2.14, Proverbs 2.17, we'll refer back to this as a covenant, the covenant of marriage. That is, it's a solemn ceremony of commitment. Marriage is a permanent declaration. That's why a couple who married here yesterday, of course, they took their vows and they said, I will. Anyone who's married here will say, I will. Will you take this woman to be? Yes, I will. Will you love, cherish, honor, obey? I will. In sickness and health? Yes, I will. I promise that I will. Easy to say today, but I promise that in 20 years' time I will. I promise that when she's sick, and it's a real pain, and my life is completely different because I have to look after a wife in a wheelchair, I will. It's a promise. A commitment. And of course, the modern mindset is, why would you... Yeah, okay, you don't need the ceremony. In our hearts, we're married. We don't need that. Yeah, you do. Because it offers protection. And God has said this is the way it's meant to be. Protection in at least a couple of senses. First, a marriage and a marriage ceremony protects marriage itself. This covenant, this public declaration, we are together now and I will be here with them. It protects the marriage. That sort of level of commitment 
Someone's put it. It's like the um, it's like the seatbelt of a marriage. So that when a marriage crashes, you don't just fall out and fly out of the car, but you're held in. Now, to a greater or lesser extent, most marriages crash at some point. It may just be a little prang, oop, uh, or it may be colossal. And if there's no seatbelt, if there's no commitment, you just fly right out. But the commitment keeps you there to work at the marriage. So I've sat with couples here from church. And I've sat with a man and a woman who are married. And one has said, I hate her. This is over. There is no way back. And she says, and I hate him. And the sooner I can get that piece of paper telling me I'm divorced from him, the better. I hate him. But I've pleaded. And others have pleaded with them. Wait. Just wait. And talk. And meet with others. The choice you have, you've got a binary choice in your mind, so it's not. You think, I can be in this marriage which is awful, or I can get out and have something better. There is a third choice. You can be in this marriage and it can be good if you work at it. There aren't just two choices. And most people think there are. Miserable marriage, or get out and try something new. There is a third choice. That marriage improved, worked at, developed. And some have, you know, some have just run away. Others have said, oh, you must be joking. All right. But a year, two years down the track, have a much better marriage than they ever had before the crash occurred. You see, in the covenant, the commitment to one another, it keeps you in the car when you crash. And you can rebuild and have another marriage, have another go. So uh, covenant, it protects marriage. It also protects individuals. Because without the commitment, without the covenant, there's insecurity, ambiguity. So, of course, the modern thing to do is um, a couple move in together, and um, we're getting a flat, yeah, we get a flat together, okay. Where is this going? Well, we'll see. There's no, there's no security, well, anxious about that. No, it's fine. And then, of course, you know, 20 years, this couple lived together, maybe, and uh, uh, the husband, he goes out to work, uh, and the wife brings up three children. And after 20 years, the bloke says, you know what, I'm a bit bored. There's someone at work who's younger than you, and I'm off with her. And what's she got? Nothing. And that's a sort of selfish culture, the way we live now. I think the law will address that, and things will get changed on cohabiting, which is probably a good thing. But um, it protects individuals, or even just in the short term. couple get together. Move in together. Where's this going? I don't know. Let's split up. Oh, I thought it was a bit more serious than that. I thought, I thought this was for keeps. No, no, never made any promises. Yeah, but I thought when you said you loved me, yeah, but what does that mean? But you said we were married in, our, in your hearts. Yeah, that was then. That changes, doesn't it? Oh. So the marriage, it protects individuals as well as protecting overall the marriage. The accountability of a public promise Made in the sight of God, it brings clarity and responsibility. It's a covenant, a commitment for keeps. It's covenant, it's one flesh. Uh, let me just uh, go back again. So we're in verses really 24 and 25. For this reason, a man will leave his father, be uh, mother, be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, they felt no shame. One flesh. We're going to make the obvious point here. You get the leaving before the cleaving. Verse 24, the marriage 
comes before they become one flesh, before they have sex. It's more than sex, we'll come to that in a moment, but it certainly is that as well, sexual intercourse. And of course, there's a point where many would say, well, how, how very boring. How very boring. I mean, how do you know if you're sexually compatible with a person if you don't sleep with them before marriage? Well, I'll tell you what, if it's a man and a woman, you kind of, you know, you'll fit. How boring, not boring. Again, this is for protection. Uh, I uh, met a chap in the summer, and uh, we spent a bit of time together. And um, we got on to talking about marriage, and uh, he'd been married a little while. Uh, and there were problems with his marriage. And uh, he opened up a bit about this. And uh, he'd been sexually active uh, before marriage. His spouse had not, she had not. And uh, this caused all manner of dilemmas, all manner of rouse, all manner of mistrust. He just couldn't believe that the pain this had caused. I got in touch with him, actually, this week. It said, what would you say to a room full of people some of whom are in danger of making that mistake. Tell them this. It is a great sadness to have any kind of sexual history before marriage. My past sins have brought fear of comparison on my wife's part and huge disappointment with myself on my part. I have an enormous sense of loss and grieving over it. Only now do I understand. Marriage is so intimate and sex is not designed to be outside of, it, outside of it. My premarital sex is the thing in my past that I wish I could change above all others in my life. Such is the impact this had upon our marriage. Now, it'll vary the impact that has on a marriage. But there's a guy who would say, were he here, don't do it. I did. I thought it was fine. I just didn't understand what marriage was. I didn't. I didn't understand. I just my I hadn't added up two and two, and so I've really damaged relationships with the one I love more than any other. I'd do anything to take that back. And um, there's a pattern. I guess sometimes you see it um, in some people, even some Christians. It goes a bit like this: people fall into intense relationships. And uh, they have sex with uh, uh, their boyfriend or girlfriend. And therefore that creates, creates a false intimacy. They think they're further along the path than they really are. And so the relationship becomes actually very intense and very self-focused, very inward looking. And then one of them wakes up and says, hold on a minute, I'm a Christian and I think marriage is meant to help me serve God. And all this is doing is making me self-absorbed. This isn't what I want. And so they fall apart and they split up. Uh, I've seen that a few times now. And actually, they think the sex will create intimacy, it'll, it'll be a nice thing. Actually, it prevents, it's a false intimacy. and prevents them ever getting to know one another. And what could have been a good relationship collapses because it all goes in the wrong order. It is a bit like stuffing yourself with sweets all morning, all day. You don't want to eat a proper meal. There's a false filling that goes on so you don't eat what's good for you. You can do that relationally. By contrast, verse 25 gives a lovely picture. 
So the man and the wife, they become one flesh. Yes, that's physically, but there's more than that. Verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's beautiful. To be with another person and to be completely revealed, not just physically, but emotionally, transparent, to lay everything before them and say, here I am. I don't need to hide anything. I don't need to cover anything. You can see all that I am. And you accept me? That's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Here is unity in purpose. Here is a man and a woman coming together and being much more together than they could have been when they were on their own. That's marriage. Marriage is meant to be more than just mutual coexistence, which many settle into. What are you doing today? What time are you back? Seven. Okay, see you later. Seven. Good day? Yeah, it was right. What should we watch on telly? House. Good. And uh, just, you just go through the motions. It's meant to be much more than that. Complete freedom. Coming together. Two plus two equaling ten in a good marriage. Much better equipped to serve the Lord God in this world than they were on their own. That's what it's meant to be in one flesh. More than mutual coexistence, but a relationship that will comfort you, that will change you, that will help you. That's what it's meant to be. Marriage. It's a covenant, it's one flesh. Last thing. It's between a man and a woman. Verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. They'll become one flesh. A man and his wife. Wow, that's countercultural now, isn't it? And of course, I'm not foolish. There are a number here who find that very hard to hear. Who are not attracted to the opposite sex, but actually physically they're attracted to the same sex as them. Of course, they're sexually attracted by men if they're a man, and women, women if they're a woman. Of course. But what we need to do with that is remember who we are. See, before you can answer the question, what am, I, what am I going to do? You have to ask the question, who am I? And the biblical answer is, you're made in the image of God for a relationship with him, to go to be with him forever. That's who you are. Answer who I am before you ask, what shall I do? Now, what shall I do? I live a life that honors him. You need to get those questions in the right order. Get them in the wrong order, you're in all sorts of trouble. So you, we, we, you can't just say, that my desires will determine my identity and what I do. Just because I desire something doesn't make it right. Just because I may desire to be really greedy doesn't mean it's right for me to steal money. But we never say that. Do you know what? I really desire to be rich. So I'm going to steal to fulfill. But that's okay. That's what I desire. You'd never say that. Or, you know what? I am angry. And my desire is to let rip at him. Uh, and because it's my desire, that must be the right thing to do. So I'll just let rip at him. Say that. We'd want to balance that out by what is acceptable in God's sight. And similarly, we can't just say, I'm attracted to the same sex as me, therefore I'm going to pursue my desires. Because it just feels right. You need to ask who I am. I'm a child of God made in the image of God. Then ask, what shall I do? Live to honour him. Now, of course, alongside that, we need to acknowledge that our sexual urges run very deep to who we are. God has made the sexual beings. And those emotions, drives, run quite deep. 
but they are still second in our identity to being made in the image of God. Wonderfully encouraging those verses in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Have we got them? Um, Just to, to put them on the screen. Where Paul writes, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Just leave that up there. Yes, you were these things. And of course, you know, once it, there's, there's a whole long list there, homosexual offenders, I mean, it's one thing in a whole long list. The greedy are there, the drunkards are there, the swindlers are there. There's you know, a whole long list there. But you can change. Not necessarily, of course, change. Oh, well, once upon a time, I, I, was, uh, I was strongly attracted to the same sex. I became a Christian, and now I find the opposite sex very attractive. I think that is very few people's testimony, if I'm honest. Some, yes, but not many. I don't think Paul is saying that. But he's saying once you lived a certain lifestyle, you became a Christian, you lived differently. You may, have had some, you may still have desires for people of the same sex, but once you became a Christian, you lived as a celibate person, a man or a woman. You lived differently. Those desires can be brought under Jesus Christ. Can I just say, if that is your struggle, in particular, same-sex attraction, you have to share it with someone. You can't handle that on your own. A very lovely book I read over the summer was this one. It's by a chap called Wesley Hill. It's called Washed and Waiting, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality. It's a wonderful book. It's a mixture of his personal... He alternates a chapter of his testimony with some theological reflection. Uh, The theological reflection is okay. I mean, you can get better books on that. But his testimony is very moving. It's a long time, a very long time since I read a book which made me cry. I think it's a wonderful book. Let me just read you one one part where he writes of um, what churches should be doing. We need to wish warmly, sorry, we also wish warmly to affirm sisters and brothers who, while experiencing same-sex desires and feelings, nevertheless battle with the rest of us in repentance and faith for a lifestyle that affirms marriage between a man and a woman and celibacy as the two given norms for sexual expression. There's room for every kind of background and past sinful experience among members of Christ's flock as we lay the way, sorry, as we learn the way of repentance and renewed night renewed lives. He goes on to quote 1 Corinthians 6. We're all in this together. In the church, it's about warm affirmation. It's about battling together for holiness in repentance and faith. Be we struggling with homosexuality. Be we struggling with greed. It's about the church being the church. We all struggle towards wholeness. It's a very wonderful book, actually. And if that's your struggle, grab one. Uh, off the bookstore. The couple required a marriage. It's covenant, it's one flesh, it's male and female. Last thing, briefly. The man required a helper, the couple required a marriage. Last thing, humanity requires a groom.
Why, why marriage? And why does God set it out the way he does? Why man and woman? Why not Adam and Farmer Giles who self-replicate and therefore produce lots of other farmers who take care of the planet? Why not? I don't know the particular answer, but one answer certainly the Bible gives is it's man and woman so that we understand Christ's relationship with the church. God has given us this, this picture of marriage between a husband and a wife to model the relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. So just as Christ lays down his life for the church, or a husband is meant to lay down his life for the church, just as the church submits to Jesus Christ and seeks to serve him, so the woman is meant to help her husband to grow and to flourish. It's a picture given to us. But it's only a temporary picture, of course. As we had read, Revelation chapter 19, and indeed more detail in Revelation 21, there's a wedding, <coughs> excuse me, there's a wedding at the end of history between Jesus Christ and his people. And marriage now is just a picture. When you're separated from a loved one, it's useful to have a picture. You look at it and remind yourself what they look like. When you're with the loved one, you don't say, excuse me, I'm just going to look at the picture. You don't do that. When we get to heaven, we won't need marriage between men and women because we'll have the reality, capital M. Jesus Christ relating to his people. We don't need male and female marriage then. We don't need the picture. Because then we have the reality. So let me be, try and be clear on this. Trying to live without human relationships will destroy you. Genesis 2, it's very striking. It's not good for the man to be alone. God doesn't say to Adam, you've got me, Adam, and that's enough. It's not good for you to be alone. I have made mankind to be in relationship with others, other human beings. God is Father, Son, and Spirit, relational. He's made mankind to be relational. So look, the desire to marry and have a family is a good one. It's not essential to anyone's identity. Many heroes in the Bible were not. Jesus Christ was not. But it is a good one. So Genesis 2 reveals that it's okay to grieve if you're married but can't have a family. Because that's not God's design. God's design is that married couples have children. And if you can't, it's okay to grieve that. That is upsetting. Don't grieve as those without hope as Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 4. But it's okay to find that hard and to grieve and be upset. But to have that upset undermined by the hope in Jesus Christ. If you're single and think it's unlikely that you'll ever marry because of your same-sex attraction, because you think, you know, I, I'm not sure that's ever going to happen for me, it's okay to grieve that to find that heart. Not grieving without hope. Not so it determines you. Not so that it's the dominant feature of your life and all you ever think about. No, that is unhealthy. But to grieve with hope is normal Christian experience. It's what we're to do when someone dies. We're upset, of course. But we still have hope we'll see them again. We're made to be relational. To, be, to think in this life I'm never going to experience being married and having children. And I would like to be. But it's okay to grieve that but not without hope. 
Perfection awaits in the next life. Plenty of bad marriages. They grieve as well. We sort of look forward to the capital M marriage. What do we do if we're grieving with hope because we don't think we'll ever marry or indeed have children? What do we do? The biblical answer is you pursue great friendships and you pursue your Lord. And that's not second best. My little, uh, my little teaser question I've asked most people I've bumped into this week. Can you name me a great marriage in the Bible? Does the Bible ever present a really great marriage? And people go, well, um, yeah, there's... Um, oh, Adam and Eve, now that goes a bit wrong, doesn't it? They don't... Um, uh, Abraham and Sarah, oh no, he, uh, he allows her to be a prostitute um, to other kings. Uh, David and Bathsheba, that's romantic, apart from he does kill her husband in order to meet her. Ruth and Boaz, that's a great one, isn't it? Well, yeah, apart from they marry and you don't really find out anything. It's a great story up until the point of marriage. You don't really find out much more after that. Joseph and Mary, that's probably the best anyone came up with. We don't know loads of detail about that marriage. The Bible doesn't say, are you lonesome tonight? Look at this marriage. This will solve all your problems. It never says that. But time and time and time again, the Bible will say, if you want to experience the love of God, go to him, but also go to his people. Time and time and time again. So, I mean, uh, uh, 1 John 4 is the sort of, perhaps the most common thing ever read at weddings. Beautiful passage on love. Love drives out fear. You think, oh, that's wonderful. That's a lovely love. Erotic love is not in sight. There's no hint of sex. There's no hint of marriage. It's as we love one another that love drives out fear. So the biblical pattern is the best love you see, certainly in New Testament language, description, is in the church in fellowship with one another, in friendships. Let me just give you one other thing from this. There's a section um, um, a little later on. Uh, the author, Wesley Hill, he goes to uh, see an older, wiser Christian uh, who's a minister and a counsellor. And uh, he says, look, I've got a friend who is a woman struggling with same-sex attraction. And um, the advice given to her is... Don't try to alter your basic desire for love. That's an impossible task. You, my dear, just need to change the object of your love and your longing. Shift your affection from other women onto Jesus Christ. The author Wesley says to uh, his friend, what do you make of that advice? His answer surprised me. Sounds too spiritual to me, said my pastor. It seems as if the uh, counselor told the woman to replace lesbian love with Jesus' love but that's confusing the difference between the two. I nodded, interestedly. He continued, In her desire for other women, the counsellor wanted human relationships. She wanted to know and touch and see and be involved with other, another human person whose facial expression she could read, whose embrace she could rest in. The counsellor suggested that she look to Jesus, who is human, yes, but who relates to other humans through his spirit now that he no longer walks the earth. The lesbian woman couldn't touch Jesus. She couldn't look into his eyes and see his face. So what should she have done? I wondered out loud. Where should she have looked for the affection she wanted? I think God wants people to experience his love through their experience of human community, in specifically the church. God created us as physical, spiritual beings with deep longings for intimacy with other 
human beings. We need to sanctify those feelings. Do you see what he's saying? I mean, slightly complicated. I read too much. But do you see what he's saying? He's saying it's no good saying, you're a woman. You only find other women sexually attractive. Hey, don't love women. Love Jesus. Ta-da! That's not biblically how God has wired us. That's not quite enough. Yes, love Jesus first and foremost. And experience his love amongst his people. Because we're spiritual beings, yes, but we're physical beings too. And sometimes, it will be too crass or naff about it, you need a hug. And a human can give that to you. So I don't want us to be super spiritual on this issue. Humanity requires a groom, yes, above all else. But don't deny your need for relationships either. Now, ultimately, no relationship, no, no friendship, no marriage will satisfy. Ultimately, of course, we are made for Jesus Christ. And um, if you expect too much from any friendship, if you expect too much from any marriage, it'll let you down, they'll disappoint you. You'll end up hating your spouse or your friends if you expect too much from them. Which is why if any of you have been around for any length of time here, you know at the end of every wedding sermon, it always ends the same way. Because I think this is great advice. It's from C.S. Lewis in his uh, wonderful book, The Four Loves. Being in love is the explosion or ignition that can start the engine of marriage. You fall in love. Vroom. But it is upon the love and grace of Jesus Christ that the engine will run and run. Always look first to him. So if you're married, never allow your spouse to displace Jesus Christ from first in your affections, because if you do, you won't have a great marriage. You'll love your spouse too much, expect too much from them. And in your friendships, don't expect a friend to do everything for you. They can't. Never let any friendship displace Jesus Christ from first in your affections. If you do, the friendship will collapse. You won't have the resources to love them, to forgive them, to enjoy them, as you should do. Because ultimately, all our relationships now, they're an echo of how good it is, in part to know Jesus Christ now, but the consummation, when we're at the wedding feast, and we look around then, but we're with him then, this life just fades into shadows. Above all else, humanity needs a groom. It requires a saviour, Jesus Christ. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we've covered a huge amount of ground and uh, you know where we're at individually. You know um, whether we're in marriages which we're struggling with and we feel like we'd like to leave at points. You know whether we're in uh, happy marriages and uh, perhaps are um, a little insensitive to others around us and need to be better at including others into our relationships. We could be single and struggling with that, struggling with same-sex attraction. But Father, wherever we're at, would we ask, first of all, who am I? Remember that we're made in your image for relationship with you. And knowing that with clarity, we'd ask, how should I live? We would sanctify our desires, live to the praise of your name, and enjoy rightly the relationships you've given to us, honouring the parameters you've set in place so that we would flourish and so that we'd honour you.
Amen.